I was a technical trainer of internet technologies in the late 1990s, teaching Perl for system administration in addition to basic courses in HTML and how to use access databases from Microsoft, stuff like that. It was a time where many companies were just starting to come to an understanding that the historical transition to web technologies was something they were going to have to get a handle on, not just from a technical aspect, but for the end user, the people who were going to have to use the new systems. I taught at companies such as Hewlett-Packard, Autodesk, Credit Suisse, and Charles Schwab. One of the more enjoyable gigs was when I spent time at SGI, where Nithya Ruff was Senior Manager of Marketing and Strategy, including Open Source Strategy, from 1995 to 1999. SGI would call me periodically for some kind of training in Photoshop or some graphics program, and I'd jump at the chance. You could tell that SGI were the cool kids on the block, not just because of their tech, but because of their graphic design and the look and feel of their products, which extended to their buildings. The culture was fun, and the people were open and friendly. And Friday evenings were so fantastic. All the catering trucks would show up, and and we'd have uh, beer busks on Fridays, and and just just the whole uh, you know quality of people and and the merger of fun and work was was so interesting. Nithya was working with multiple groups at the time. She worked the product management side with Bove Rolex organization, was close with Dave McAllister, Director of Strategic Technologies, and with Ken Coleman's Support and Services Group. It was a fun, productive time for her. Nithya was responsible for writing customer support and service products and how they consume the product support from SGI for IRIX. IRIX on MIPS was some of the best performance you could get at the time, but SGI could see the writing on the wall towards commodity servers and standards-based Linux, as well as Microsoft operating systems. Customers wanted cheaper, faster, cheaper, better. Towards 97, the company started talking about how to ship commodity servers based on x86 with Microsoft and with Linux. So one of my tasks was to work with the server group, which is Bose team uh, and people like Dave McAllister and others to say, what should our strategy be as we move to Linux? The way our business model and monetization worked had to be very different in the open source world. I also needed to figure out how do we support customers on an operating system that we didn't create and that was really created by hundreds of projects in open source. How do we coordinate with those projects? How do we upstream any changes we make? Uh, How do we provide the same level of enterprise-grade support to customers when we didn't have control over where the software came from? The perception at the time, in the late 90s, was that open source would be cheaper than buying proprietary software, but there was the flip side to that argument. The counter-argument was that it was not that much cheaper because you still needed the support. You still needed the team behind it to make sure that it's running. Many enterprises SGI served were new to Linux. Those clients needed to be shielded or sheltered from any variances 
and given the same quality of support SGI would give for IRIX, they needed to make it safe to use Linux. As part of that strategy, they had to find a way to monetize the support and deliver it at the same or lower cost than what they could they on IRIX. wanted to. We explored different ideas such as can there be the concept of an enterprise patch, which is SGI certified patches and support hardened code, um, which we would then deliver, but we would then upstream some of those changes back into open source. Another point that's very important to understand during that time is that today we expect open source to be cutting edge, leading edge. In those days, open source was way behind proprietary solutions like Solaris or IREX or HP's operating system. And so we were actually bridging the gap between you know, what uh, proprietary operating systems were and Linux. One of the big plans within SGI was what in IREX do we need to contribute back into Linux so that we can raise the bar on Linux such that it can be sufficient for our customers. It was an interesting time for the industry, that transition from proprietary to open source. In retrospect, there wasn't any concern about security. Security wasn't as much front and center as it is today. We were still trying to achieve parity in feature function and also create safety in use of open source and the fact that there was a company behind it or you know, you could get uh, SLA-based support or those kinds of things. And most of the servers that were shipped were typically used in maybe less mission-critical type of applications in the beginning. You know, as people's comfort and safety built up, they started proliferating across other use cases. But security was never as much a thought as it is today. From the Linux Foundation office in New York City, this is the Untold Stories of Open Source. Each week, we choose an open source project or a person behind a popular open source project to uncover its untold stories. If you work with open source, and you do whether you know it or not, you're in the right place. Stay with us. In 2000, there were very few experts in open source and how to work with open source communities. What did it mean to a company from a business model perspective? Nithya Ruff was one of those experts. A mentor of hers suggested she speak with Gene Kim about his new company, Tripwire. The roots of the company were in freeware. Gene and his partner came from Purdue University. When the company first started, they took most of the code from their project and made it proprietary, creating different versions of it for Solaris and Linux. There was an uneasiness and a grumbling from the open source community that Tripwire for Linux really should be open sourced and should not be proprietary given that it came from a freeware root. The company was facing the decision on what to do with Tripwire for Linux. They weren't able to bundle a proprietary version of Tripwire for Linux with any of the distributions, 
such as Red Hat or Caldera. Gene and Wyatt Starnes in those days, who was the CEO of Tripwire, was very eager to have me come over and lead the product management team and help make those decisions in terms of should we or should we not open source Tripwire for Linux? How do we do it right? How do we build community around it? And then how do we create these relationships uh, to bundle Tripwire uh, in with distributions? And so there could be an upsell to a full-blown Tripwire So they were trying to figure out the bundling strategy, the open sourcing strategy, and the business model around Tripwire. One of the interesting things in the process of transitioning an industry to open source is the assumption that if you make changes, if you make additions to the code, you contribute it back to the community. These restrictions are critical when it comes to creating solutions based upon open source. A business model and a strategy needs to be developed to accommodate open source contributions while generating income. One of those models is to cripple the software and then charge to upgrade to a full version. It was always clear to me and even today that it is important to uh, have a fully functioning and a complete solution that you open source. You do not cripple it. You do not, you know, deprecate certain features and withhold certain features for the proprietary version. We discussed that. So what we decided to do was make it more of a temporal decision, meaning the previous release of Tripwire would always be open sourced, but the latest and greatest would be uh, commercial. And knowing that, you know, you had like a year period where you could monetize it. And then after that, The community would catch up with you or you really needed to uh, give it back to open source. And it's the flip of what a lot of communities do now, which is the cutting edge is always in open source. And then the commercial version is often built from that. And there are so many variations that companies do today. It was an interesting, you know, tactic. So people could get the previous version with their Red Hat you know, distribution CD or, um, you know, whatever. If they wanted certain features in the latest release, they could then buy an upgrade with uh, Tripwire itself. From Tripwire, Nithya went to Avaya. She was recruited to work with Vic Langford, who she really respected. He was the general manager and vice president of the Voice Messaging and Unified Communications Group. Her position was to lead the product management organization. Avaya was a spin-off deal from Lucent Technologies in 2000. Its focus was on communication solutions for enterprise clients. Nithya came on board in 2001. Her teams impacted $500 million in professional services revenue. She led the launch of two new product lines, driving revenues from less than $1 million to over $40 million in three years. Avaya was not an open source company or working in open source. Uh, a lot of the, the companies I worked for were trying to transition from proprietary or very siloed products, you know, very black box products to more standards-based products. And that seems to be a common thread that I've gone through, even in proprietary companies. 
And so Avaya also was going through and, and trying to move away from a very, very monolithic black box voice messaging system that they had millions of dollars invested in uh, called the Octel voice messaging system. I don't know if you've ever used it. And, and they wanted to go to more of a standards-based system, a more componentized system, if you will, with the voice server at the back and then all the UI and the, the functions and the application server in the front. The application server was Linux-based, while the storage server was Microsoft-based. The desire was to move to more componentized architectures because that allowed Avaya to move to unified communications where you could blend digital components such as email with voicemail and speech-to-text and text-to-speech. All of these were different components. An architecture was needed that would allow a componentized Which is framework. Because the, the vision was very powerful in yes. those, of what it could be. Even the PBX was morphing into IP telephony. So the whole company was going through this transition to an IP-based and a digitized uh, you know, way to handle uh, media. And, and so it, I learned a lot. I, learned, I both did product management there, managed a very large team, but I also did professional services management and consulting uh, with customers who were you know, migrating from the mm -hmm. old world to the new world. In October of 2007, Nithya was sought after by a new company, focusing on open source and Linux. Wind River was an Intel subsidiary. The company develops embedded system and cloud software consisting of real-time operating system software, industry-specific software, simulation technology, development tools, and middleware. VxWorks is the original flagship product of Wind River. It is a real-time operating system for embedded and critical infrastructure devices and systems. Nithya was brought on as Senior Director of Linux Product Management and Marketing, responsible for creating and implementing the go-to-market strategy. At the time, VxWorks was their proprietary embedded operating system. It was a real-time operating system that was often used in industrial applications. The purpose was to create embedded operating systems that device companies could use to build custom devices. If a company was building a router, or a set-top box, or an industrial tower or robot, and needed an operating system that could be customized for that particular device, VxWorks filled that need. However, there was a new game on the horizon. But they also were beginning to see the writing on the wall, that people were beginning to use Linux to create embedded devices. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to the sixth episode of a 10-part series. If you haven't subscribed yet, you've missed out on some pretty fun discussions with people like Brian Bellendorf and Sarah Chips, Priyanka Sharma, Patrick Dubois, and Clyde Seepersad. We know there's a lot of podcasts to choose from. Everybody and their mother now has a show. We're trying to do something new here and appreciate you spending a little time to check us out. Wherever you're listening... Take a look down at your screen real quick and click the subscribe button. That's all we need to keep us going. Now, let's get back to our story. 
Linux and the roll-your-own open-source community was building systems competing with Wind River. Nithya and the team had to come up with a business model and a marketing strategy in order to stay relevant. At that time, I think MontaVista Linux was one of the, the predominant embedded Linuxes. But most customers in the embedded space were more comfortable creating custom distributions themselves because it was, it was such a custom work that it was easier to kind of download components from different websites, from linuxkernel.org and other components and kind of craft it into the, the open source or the operating system you needed. So we were trying to compete with a roll your own type of customers and say, hey, we can give you uh, a Windriver Linux distribution plus uh, we could give you an IDE whereby you could create your own custom distribution and you have the backing of a company behind you. You have well curated and tested and packaged you know, distribution rather than having to go through the variations of creating your own. And one of the other benefits was we kind of had done all of the compliance work, the scanning work and identifying licenses and testing licenses and giving you all of that information so that when you needed to comply with licenses, you had all this information, you know, that you could package and share with your customers. The last one I'll say is we actually tested Windriver Linux against six different architectures from MIPS to ARM to uh, x86 and even Solaris and uh, I mean, Sun, you know, hardware. So, so you, we really had done a lot of the heavy lifting uh, for device makers and it, it was a really fun, um, I, I ran the product management team there. So we uh, had to create both the product as well as the business model, if you will, to sell this. Around that time, people were starting to realize they didn't really need to build things from scratch. You can get something that's just a commodity. And what you want to do is build a differentiator on top of that. One of the dominant verticals Wind River sold was to networking. All of the big networking companies in those days, either Ericsson or Alcatel Lucent or Nokia, all of them bought Wind River as the commodity layer and then built custom-specific distributions on top of it for their devices. They were trying to standardize a common operating system layer for all of their business units to use in their devices. Especially in the embedded space, articulating the value of a company-based distribution, say like a Windriver versus Roll Your Own, was really hard. Because if you looked at that market in those days, uh, 75 to 80% of customers wanted to roll their own. So the 20% of the market was kind of split between all the commercial vendors. When Nithya said that, I thought, well, that's the complete antithesis of what I've been hearing most people say. People I've talked with said their company was forcing them to use proprietary software, and you had to beat them over the head with a stick to get open source in. This was, you know, engineering teams within companies who had to create a handcrafted product for their particular, you know, use. Proprietary is not uh, very useful in, in that kind of a use case. 
you really needed to be able to say, I need this package. I don't need this package. I need it on this architecture and I need to have it this size for my device. And so I would say the 80s and 90s are more what you're talking about, Mark, where people preferred, you know, proprietary over open source and they were really afraid of open source. They were nervous about how support would be delivered, you know, what the, um, mm-hmm. the quality of the code would be. One of the challenges was the choice that had to be made between should I use a commercial distribution from a company or should I just continue to build my own? What's that delta and what value do I get? But there was another huge hurdle to get over. The other challenge was really making money. You know, how do you, first of all, articulate value? And then how do you justify charging what you charge for a distribution, right? Because again, they would always compare it back to, hey, I can do it on my own. Why do I need to pay you for for uh, the distribution? It's It's been hard through the, the time frame from then to now to really find good ways to monetize over open source. Uh, and as you know, Red Hat's been one of the most successful companies in this area, but most companies have really struggled to monetize and, and sustain a, 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 an open source-based business. When you look at the Red Hat business model, the main source of revenue is from support and services, not selling distributions. Nithya respects them for that. And very few companies have been able to pull off just monetizing and just building a business on providing support services. You know, I've worked in enterprises where we bought from uh, open source based businesses. You soon develop expertise in using the product. And so you say, after two years, you typically say, I don't need support. I can just you know, cut off the support and just sustain myself because we have enough people inside the company who know how to use this and support ourselves. And we have a pretty stable configuration, so we don't need any kind of support. And so the support-based and the services-based business tends to run its course and does not scale as much as a pure software-based business. So you you haven't seen too many successful models there. I think the cloud is providing a better business model. So delivering the product as a service uh, because the operationalization of an open source product is so difficult to do and it saves you the time of installation, integration, support, testing, et cetera. And you can just run, start running the product from day one. I think that's been a, a, a pretty good business model. In 2013, Nithya got a call from Western Digital to work in the office of the CTO and to run the open source program office. It was an inflection point for her. Previous companies had her jumping from customer support to project management to product marketing. This new position gave her a chance to focus on strategy. And then with Western Digital, I started uh, working in the CTO office and also running the open source program office for the entire company and open source strategy for the entire company. And what was really interesting uh, at Western Digital for me was they never had an open source strategy office 
And so I had to pitch them on why the company needed an open source strategy office. Because I, I, I was initially in the enterprise group where uh, we were building an open source based storage server. And it became very clear that our processes, our policies weren't friendly to open source and they needed to change. Uh, if we are to do more open source based products or engage with open source or be able to collaborate with other companies on common uh, concerns we had in the storage space. So if, if you're a flash vendor, you really have to work very closely with the file system companies or the file system you know, projects and, and Linux kernel projects to make sure that the speed of flash is supported on software. Most software at that time was handling um, more, you know, uh, disk-based disk-based uh, storage versus flash, and so we had to really upstream optimizations, if you will, for flash into uh, open source. Nithya successfully pitched the notion of an open source strategy office to the chief strategy officer and SVP of engineering. She was able to get approval to start the office and began facilitating discussions across the consumer side, the retail side, the enterprise side, and trying to find common threads. But it also had to be a very specific strategy. The retail and the consumer side had very different open source strategy than the enterprise side. I got the uh, company to join the Linux Foundation and the OpenStack Foundation to uh, be visible in the community to uh, support contributors and maintainers in the company. It was a fantastic time. In the transitional situation Nithya found herself, where she was bringing in conceptually something new, there's the possibility of getting political pushback from two directions. You can get political pushback from the dinosaurs at the top saying, that's not the way we run this business. And then from the underneath, you might activate the bubbling of discontent. How can you protect yourself from both angles? We actually had a lot of budding open source enthusiasts sprinkled across the company. So there were a lot of people who wanted to do more open source and believed that we needed to do more open source, but had not found a voice or a, an organization through which they could do it. And then at the top, there was recognition that, you know, we needed to coordinate this work and be intentional about this work and more smart about this work versus, you know, very ad hoc, different groups doing their own thing. So the top recognized the need for more proactive policy process coordination. My champion at the top was our chief strategy officer, Sumit Sadana, who's now at Micron. I reported into Sumit's organization when I was uh, first there. The other champion was my own boss uh, at the time, who was the general manager of the open source based server we were trying to create because he knew if his business was going to be successful the company needed to be a lot more proactive in open source and needed to have the right bones for supporting open source engagement. Yeah, I, so I think I had support from the top and then the bottom was really happy 
So initially, I really connected the dots across open source enthusiasts, really did a survey of where are the hotspots for open source across the company and how do we kind of pull this all together. Creating a new strategy, starting a new way of thinking and making a cultural transition could not happen without those champions at the top. In addition to the support side she found internally, Nithya also discovered an external champion at the Linux Foundation. I'll also mention one more champion. So the Linux Foundation was the other champion for me. So one of the pivotal things I did um, as a new director of open source strategy was contact Jim Zemlin and say, Jim, I need your help. I need you to come in and explain to our leadership why open source is so important for us and how the industry is working with open source and how our peer group and other companies are working with open source because I need us to understand that this is a competitive advantage. And if we don't do this, uh, we are going to be left behind and we need to be investing in this space. Nithya organized an all-hands meeting, bringing in Jim Zemlin, executive director of the Linux Foundation, to articulate the open source message. All of the senior vice presidents, both the hardware side and the software side, were invited. After that, things started changing. People understood the world was transitioning to open source, and the company couldn't afford to be left behind. She still remembers the messages Jim brought to the table. One was just the traction of open source. You know, Jim has some great slides that he shares in the Open Source Summit about uh, all of the industries that have adopted open source and, you know, where it is. The other one that was really, really interesting to me is how open source community becomes an extended engineering team for you and that you can then focus on your core competency while leveraging uh, the extended team for common components that all of us use. And it just became very clear to us that as we moved to uh, the digital space, we really needed to have the software support uh, the hardware. uh, And we had to work in tandem with the software that we could not just you know, do our hardware optimization thing without the software being ready for it. Not only did the company understand the new open source strategy, Nithya personally heard something in that meeting that resonated with her. So much so, she became the chair of the board of directors at the Linux Foundation. A year or so after that meeting, Jim came back to me and said, we'd like to invite you to join the board as an independent director, because we really like what you're doing, starting open source in companies, especially companies that are very unlikely candidates for open source. You've had a long history working with open source. So the two things that that I would be championing in SanDisk and Western Digital was also diversity in tech and then open source and why companies need to do open source. He also wanted the the diversity and the thinking that I had done in diversity. And I had been very involved in OpenStack and uh, some of the culture and community leadership in OpenStack. So all of that helped him and the board realize that it would be good to have me on the board. 
Something I find fascinating in Nithya's story is that we always hear that an individual can't make that big of a difference. I would argue the point because I've seen someone make a huge difference, not as a high-level manager, but somebody that was driving the initiative. Somebody has to be the person to open the door for others to walk through. There has to be a liaison who can actually translate back and forth to make sure there's understanding through clear communication and agreed-upon terminology. What really becomes powerful for a company when they have someone who is the center of excellence, whose sole job it is to move the needle on open source, is that you have someone who's thinking and breathing and working in open source bringing that expertise and bringing that bridge to community, bringing that bridge to best practices uh, to the company. It's very hard to do in the model that used to work before, which is the engineer who was most vocal about open source was often saddled with, hey, you now need to kind of help others uh, if they have any open source questions and they'll all come to you he or she would inevitably be pulled into their everyday work and they would not have a chance to really monitor development and and kind of be the resource for the rest of the company. It helped to think proactively and intentionally and in an organized way of how the company needs to do it. And frankly, also be neutral to different business units and uh, broker relationships across business units on common goals and common practices and showcase good practices across the company. Because of her passion for diversity and inclusion in technology, she was asked to be the president of SanDisk Women's Leadership Program. By the time Nithya left Western Digital in 2017, she was a member of the OpenStack Diversity Working Group and Women of OpenStack and a member of the To-Do Group under the Linux Foundation. Yes, one person can make a difference. Nithya left Western Digital in 2017 to work with Comcast as the Senior Director of Open Source Practice. Her role was to support thousands of developers and engineering leaders across the company, focusing on how to enable Comcast to leverage the power of collaboration internally and externally. One of her first initiatives was to establish a center of excellence in open source. And at that time, it was thought that open source would be another guild, if you will, Security was trying to kind of create a uh, security guild inside the company uh, and raise the bar on you know security knowledge and practices. And open source was going to you know kind of do the same thing. And I was brought in to create consistent practices across Comcast, which had become you know this tremendous software company. Uh, they were building their own devices and they were building uh, applications and services across the cloud. And and we're using a lot of open source and needed compliance and consistent practices in software development. It was the perfect alignment of resources and vision for Nithya. She was bringing a diverse set of experiences to the company through almost two decades of being in the industry. Someone who brings that amount of experience to the table has a different view than other people. What I always carried with me was a framework of 
what should an open source uh, strategy look like and what should an open source office look like, but the businesses always changed and varied. So you have to then take this template and say, how do I apply it to a hardware company? How do I apply it to uh, a company that's in media and entertainment? How do I apply it to a cloud company now? You have to start with uh, what is the business of the company? What is the role software plays in that business? How does open source help the company achieve its objectives? Then you kind of have to say, what of the open source strategy do you apply to help the company achieve its uh, strategy and business objectives? And it cannot, it is not always a cookie cutter where you just take the same things and apply the same things in every company. In the case of a business like a media and entertainment business, the kind of communities you work with are different. Upstreaming something or contributing something is sometimes easier because that is not your business. You are not selling software. So giving away that software and putting it into open source is a much easier discussion. Uh, but the line to money is also much further. So you are enabling developers to uh, do faster, better, cheaper software development, which then enables you to create features and functions which your customers experience and like. Um, so it's not easy to say because of the open source strategy, the company was able to move you know, two years faster or save so much money. And so articulating the connection to the business and the connection to business impact was always challenging. That framework, that template is like an internal personal map that expands with each new experience. Each company you work with, each project that you work on adds to that internal framework. People with this level of experience see things that other people don't and make connections that other people don't because of those prior experiences. I always say that the last 10 years have been so magical for me because uh, all of the diverse experiences I accumulated in the first 20 years or so finally made sense and they connected the dots for me. You know, the marketing side, the product management side, the developer experience, the uh, customer support experience, the strategy experience, finally, because open source strategy requires you to do inter intersectional thinking uh, to be able to understand how you create communities, how you advocate for a project, which is marketing. How do you create business models around it? How do you, how does it fit into the business of the company? What's the legal implications? Uh, what is our IP strategy? And, and every company has a different IP strategy and a patent strategy. And you kind of have to come in and overlay and adjust your framework for that particular company. So it's been a fantastic 10 years because I've, I've been able to then implement all my learnings from before. Nithya is once again transitioning to a new role, this time at Amazon. She's head of the open source program office for the entirety of the company. The specific role she'll play is as chief open source officer. I posted a, a note on LinkedIn when I joined Amazon, and I, I'll say that there is no other company that is as 
impactful on technology today as Amazon is, the thought of doing open source at scale at the edge of cloud and open source was, was so compelling. The fact that customers increasingly want open source services and want to run their open source on, on cloud was very, very compelling. The need for cloud and open source to work more closely together in terms of the full circle. I think open source is still the place where a lot of innovation happens. And then the delivery model is services and cloud. And then you need to then, you know, give back to open source so that open source can continue to thrive and sustain and keep that virtuous cycle going. Working with Amazon gives Nithya the resources to scale. The notion of managed services and the notion of software as a service really solves many problems for the last mile, if you will, for open source. It makes it more consumable, easier to consume, easier to scale, uh, easier to operate. It takes away a lot of the headaches of operating open source software at scale. I remember in my role at Comcast trying to implement an on-premise software and it took us almost a year before we could actually have it fully operational because, ah, my gosh, you know, the I had to make sure the, the, the underlying infrastructure could support it, that the configuration was just right and the vendor hadn't supported it on the kind of infrastructure we had. And it just took us so many months back and forth to finally getting it operational. But when we switched that same software to a uh, as a service model, the next day we could start using it and we could benefit from the latest and greatest. And we didn't have to worry about configurations and operational issues. I think there's a symbiosis between the two. It completes each other. Delivering as a service really completes the promise of open source. Our program today was created with help from the team at the Linux Foundation, including James McLeod, GitHub tech extraordinaire with the Finos Project, Chip Stewart, maestro of spreading the word, Melissa Schmidt, cool design and graphics, Noah Lehman, social media maven, and Jennifer Bly for her awesome voiceover talent. Music for the show is from Blue Dot Sessions. Our website, where you can listen to all of the episodes of the Untold Stories of Open Source, completely ungated and free, can be found on our GitHub project or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Mark Miller, back next week with another Untold Story of Open Source. Next week on the Untold Stories of Open Source, we'll tell the story of Royal O'Brien and his path through the open source video and gaming industry. Royal is General Manager of Digital Media and Games at the Linux Foundation. 
we get into a discussion comparing the Unreal Engine against the Unity Engine and how the Open3D Engine stands up to them both. Royal was responsible for bringing the Lumberyard Engine to the open source community during his tenure with Amazon. What happened since? Next week on your favorite podcast platform.